right, all right. Hey, everybody. Hello, hello. Hey, uh, if you got a Bible, let's go to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, this is, man, it's such a cool passage that I get to, to share. And uh, I'm in praying that the Lord just uses it to bring further context, uh, further deeper understanding to the new covenant, because that's really what he's talking about. So I wanna, I've been studying for this, you know, for the last couple of weeks, and so this kind of Hebrews track has been playing in the background of everything I've, you know, seen, watched, heard for the last couple of weeks. So I'll give you a, a random, you know, thought stream that maybe it helps and maybe it doesn't. Uh, so I'm watching the NBA playoffs the other day, because... There's three or four of us in the room that like the NBA, and so watch the NBA playoffs the other night, and um, so I'm sitting on my couch by myself, eating popcorn, watching the NBA playoffs, and that, towards the end of the, uh, of the game, this, you know, millionaire pro basketball player, Sadiq Bey, uh, he plays for the Hawks, they're going against Celtics, and towards the end of the game, he gets a steal, and he's kind of flat-footed underneath the basket like this, and he just kind of, time's running out. He awkwardly just goes up, and he, you can tell he's kind of deciding what to do in the air, and he goes to dunk it, and he misses. And instantly I went, oh, man, you should have laid it up. And then I started laughing because I thought, I should text him and tell him, like, <laughs> hello, millionaire basketball player. I know I'm 44 years old. I'm five foot seven. My high school career is 25 years in the rear view, but... Let me, let me tell you what I think you ought to do. And then it sent me on this funny, like, funny trail. Uh, I started looking at, like, normal people versus pro athletes uh, on YouTube. And I don't know if you've ever watched stuff like that, but it's hilarious. So I went to a video. You know, there's a, an Olympic swimmer. Her name is Natalie Coughlin, and she's won, like, 12 Olympic medals. And she did a funny video where she went on a college campus. She's got her swim cap on and her goggles on. She's like, hey, you want to race? And she just goes up to random folks and finally she gets a guy that's like, okay, just a random college guy. So they get out to the pool and, you know, he has cargo shorts on, you know, and he's ready to race. And so they jump in the pool, beep, and they jump in. And she, of course, just like this beautiful dive and like the mermaid thing underwater. And then she comes up and just bah, bah, bah. She gets to the far wall. It's just a down and back. She gets to the far wall. She comes back and she's about 10 yards-ish from the, the wall, and she kind of stops and turns over, and she sees that my boy is almost touching the far wall over there. So she stops, and she starts doggy paddling like this, and she's like, come on, you can do it, you can do it. And finally, he comes, and, like, and at the end, he gets to the wall, and he's going, <laughs> and the, the commentator guy's like, uh, Natalie, you're not breathing hard. She goes, I don't did win 12 Olympic medals and like th that video I'm a firm believer that and y'all have everybody's had this conversation before but firm believer that in the Olympics they should have a regular person on every event just to show the gap you know <laughs> just just because because we lose respect that we ought to have sometimes for a gymnast or for a sprinter we lose respect for the gap it's just like these are superhumans doing this stuff all right so Hebrews is playing in the background, right, of the soundtrack that's playing in the background because I'm studying this. So I'm on my couch, and I go from watching Sadiq Bey and going through this Natalie Coughlin video, and I go right back to my room to go study, and I open this up, and it's talking about Christ is better, Christ is better, Christ is better. And I went, oh, my gosh. This is it. This is what Hebrews is doing. Hebrews is, I mean, it's precisely, it's showing us the gap 
between the old covenant and how much better Christ is and how much better his ministry is, how much better of a mediator he was, how much, you know, like, how much better the new covenant is because it's based on these better promises. And just, I think it's important that we hear the explanation from Hebrews precisely because we're not Jewish. Like, we don't feel this explanation. We didn't go to the temple this morning. We've never made sacrifices before, right? We've never put all our hope in our law keeping. And so I think, man, we need, we need Hebrews to really explain this gap. And that's what Hebrews does. It, it systematically walks through how Christ is better. Christ is better. Now, last week, we were in the first part of chapter 8. We're going to be, we're going to dip back actually to verse 6. Um, because last week we established that I mean, Christ is a better minister, he's a better high priest, and Joseph talked about with that with the chart, which I loved. A good chart, you know, is great. And like uh, that just how Christ is a better priest than the high priest, and uh, uh, great. He had a better ministry than the old ministry. But I want to talk about the other two things that verse 6 said, which is his covenant is better because it's based on better promises, And how big that gap is between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old promises and the new promises. And what this passage says about what's real for us. So let's jump into verse 6. I know we're covering two verses of ground that Joseph covered last week. But it's important for context for what we're looking at. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Now, we covered last week that he's a better minister, he's a better mediator. He's, you know, we talked about the ministry of the old high priest. They fell short, Christ did not. He, we talked about the mediation of Moses earlier, where Moses fell short and Jesus didn't. His mediation was better. But here the author's pointing out, it's not just that his ministry is better, it's that the covenant that he mediates, this new covenant, is better than the old covenant. You know, we talk about Old Testament and New Testament, this old covenant. uh, Like, the question is, what was wrong with the old covenant? Was there fault? Was there an error? Was there a mess up in the old covenant that God needed a redo? We're going to come back to that. But I think a key verse in this whole passage is verse 5. If you just take a glance at that, it says that everything priest-related was a copy and a shadow. And I think that's important to keep in mind as we're thinking about this new covenant and how it relates uh, to the old covenant. It's saying that everything priest-related was a copy and a shadow. So you got to think the tabernacle, the temple, shadow, just a copy. The priest, shadow. The feasts, shadow. Sacrifices, shadow. Uh, When I was in college, I took a, a philosophy class. I don't know if you guys have ever done that, but it is something else uh but we did one uh he, he went through he's talking about plato and y'all have heard the plato's cave illustration where plato's talking about how to understand reality and uh it's a it's an illustration about seeing reality and in this illustration that plato gives he says picture some guys are in prison but in this prison they're chained basically facing a wall and they can, they can only face this wall they're chained to that wall well They've been in this prison for years and years and years and years, but they weren't born there, right? And so they're facing this wall. Well, behind them is the activity of the day. So imagine you guys, like there's people passing on the street, and behind that is a fire or the sun. There's a light. And so all these guys can see is what's projected in shadow on the wall in front of them. They can't see the real back here. You know what I'm saying? 
So his illustration is he talks about how when somebody is freed, which for Plato is the reason, I think, but when someone is freed and sees the real, they can't settle for the shadow anymore. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's, that's kind of what he's talking about here. If everything priest-related was shadow, then Christ is the reality. We've seen the shadow, the tabernacle, the priest, the sacrifices, and then we turn around and see Christ, and when the real appears, the shadows fall away. They're not enough anymore because he is the tabernacle. He is the temple. He is the priest. He fulfills the feast. He is the sacrifice. That's the real behind all these shadows. So we don't need these anymore. We don't need the shadows anymore. And in fact, in a couple of verses, it's going to say that old covenant is becoming obsolete. Now, you got to think, even on a strictly practical level, we couldn't do the old system anymore without some large-scale changes if the message of God is going to go to all people. You know what I'm saying? Just on a practical level, think about if the message is going to everybody, how many temples are we going to build? How many priests we got to have to do that many sacrifices, right? How would those laws that Brody talked about a couple weeks ago, how would those laws to set God's people apart work if every nation was God's people? You see what I'm saying? If the message is for everybody, we got to make some changes here. If this is going to go global, it's got to be different. It's got to be mobile. It's got to be internal. But this isn't just expansion. It's not just about going global. It's more. Here he's talking about the old covenant and the old promises, and he's saying the new covenant and the new promises are better. In fact, he says the new covenant is better because it's enacted upon better promises. Okay, so that implies, all right, this this is getting nerdy. I hope I don't lose you in the nerdiness, but we got we to gotta get nerdy, all right? That implies that the, new, that the old covenant had promises, right? So what were the promises in the old covenant? What, what were the promises there? Leviticus 18.5 says one of the promises. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. If you keep my rules, you will live. That is a promise. But, man, that is a toughie. <laughs> if you keep all my rules, you'll live. That's the promise. All right, Ezekiel 20. <clears throat> so I led, them, I led them out of the land of Egypt, and I brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which, if a person does them, he will live. It's a promise. But it's hard. Keep that verse in mind, that I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness and I gave them my rules. Keep that in your mind because it's going to pop up in our verse later. But the promise is blessing in life if you keep the commandments, curses if you break them, right? And the covenant is enacted. Here he says this covenant that Christ does is enacted, which is a legal term, which means there's a change in the law because there's been a fundamental change in the priesthood. He says there's been a big change, better promises, better covenant. So my questions are, how is this new covenant better than the old? And what are the new promises that are better than the old? Let's dive in. Verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. Now, this is a huge statement, especially if you're hearing this as a Jew. Especially if you're a Hebrew, you're hearing this. It'd be hard to hear that there is a fault in the beloved covenant. Is it faulty? But because he's about to quote one of their most loved prophets to back this up. Is there fault in the old covenant? Yes and no. All right, think about this. God made the first covenant. God enacted 
the first covenant, and he does not make mistakes. And so the covenant was not faulty on God's side. It wasn't as if God made the system and was like, shoot, that is too hard. I'm going to have to do something different. It's not like he messed up and needed a do-over, right? The law gave the perfect standard to live by, and that also is not faulty because it reflects God's perfect character. So where's the fault in the old covenant? Now, some people will say the old covenant was faulty because it had no grace, You know, we had this new covenant, it's all grace. The old covenant, it's all law. Well, that's not true either. There was tons of grace in the Old Testament. You you think he put up all these laws and immediately after made a system because he knew he couldn't keep it. He made the sacrificial system. That is all grace. You can have your sins forgiven. You kill these animals, have your faith in God. Your sins are covered. God's system was faultless, but there's still fault in the covenant. There's fault in one side of the covenant. Here it says, this verse says there's a flaw, so where's the flaw? Verse 8. For he finds, remember he says, if that first covenant had been faultless, no reason to look for a second. Verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, now here starts a quote from Jeremiah. He's, He's quoting a prophet to back it up. He finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Pause. That is, remember that, the the old promise. I took them out of hand. If they keep my laws, they'll live, right? Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Some context on this quote from Jeremiah, all right? So Kent Hughes says this about that. He says, the setting of these verses from Jeremiah, they date back to Josiah's reign, when after the rediscovery of the law, a national time of repentance and a public covenant, we will keep the law, a public covenant to keep the law, Israel again failed. And in the midst of this dark failure, God makes a promise of a new covenant, that wasn't gonna be conditional like the old, but unconditional, totally dependent on the work of God. You gotta imagine, while Jeremiah is penning these words, I'll make a new covenant in that day, not like the one I made with their fathers. He's penning this down, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what this new covenant looks like, but it's gotta bring so much hope in a dark, dark time. Verse eight, he finds fault with them. And that's that. That statement is earth-shattering. Where's the fault in the first covenant? He finds fault with them. He led them out, took them by the hand. They didn't continue in his covenant because they couldn't. See, the flaw in the first covenant was the people. It was the people. The first covenant was designed to point that out, among other things. But you've got to think about how crazy this thought is because the Israelites, when they, uh, when they were taken out of the land of Egypt and they were brought before Sinai, right? They're going to receive God's laws. These guys were as close to God as humans could externally be, for real. They had seen more than any generation on the planet. You've got to think, they had seen literal miracles, water turned to blood, all the plagues in Egypt. They'd seen all these miracles. They had been taken by the hand. They'd been led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Like, think about how strong their faith must be. They'd been provided for visibly with manna from heaven, right? They'd they'd come to Sinai, they see this huge cloud, and they literally hear the voice of God and say, too much, it's it's too much, Moses, you, you go talk to him. Like, they've heard the voice of God, and some of them had met with God personally on the mountain, the elders and Moses. The law was given, 
And while Moses is up there getting the law, the people worship the calf under the shadow of God. They were so close to God and they would be forgiven by God, but they were still, this is key, they were still missing the want to. They were missing the desire and the ability to follow. You know what I'm saying? That was the missing key here. Here's the beauty of the new covenant. Think about this. If Christ had come and he had fulfilled the law, got rid of the temple, been the better high priest, if he'd just done that, we'd have been in the same boat. If it was up to us to still keep the law, but we got a better priest, if law keeping was the key, we would have continued to fail and fail and fail and fail. Okay, here's the thought that I was just, it was just bothering me as I was studying this. You got the old covenant. God knew we couldn't keep it. You got forgiveness. Why'd we need a new one if we could get forgiven in this old one? Why do we need it, right? Obviously, Christ wants for all the blood of bulls and goats to understand that, but like, why did we need a change? Because there was forgiveness in the old covenant. There was faith in the old covenant. There were promises in the old covenant, but these things didn't penetrate hearts. That's the problem. These, these Old Testament rites, they could, they could sanctify our flesh, but they couldn't purify our conscience. They couldn't go deep down. See, the, the, the fault in the first covenant wasn't that the law was bad. It was that our hearts were bad. And that's precisely what Christ came to do. He came to change our hearts, to change our loves, to change our wants, to indwell us and change us from the inside. The copies, the shadows, were obsolete in one sense, but they weren't useless. Because think about this, why did God wait so long to change our hearts? I mean, it's centuries. It's a long time, a lot of sacrifices. Why did he wait so long? The copies were obsolete in one sense, but they weren't useless. They taught. I'm gonna read a couple passages. Romans 7. What shall we, I'm sorry, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin, Paul says. I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law didn't say, don't covet. But then sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kind of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. See, the law didn't create sin, it exposed it. And we wouldn't have known that we were sinful without it. Galatians 3. He asks the question that we're all asking. Why the law? Why the first covenant? He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. If a law had been given that could give life, there's a key question. If a law could be given that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, therefore, faith came and we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming uh, faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Under the law, we were imprisoned until the promise 
of faith in Jesus Christ, the better promise, might be given to those who believe. See, the shadows, they weren't useless. They were teachers, right? You think about this. What did the temple teach us? That God's holy, and we must approach him rightly. What did the priesthood teach us? That God makes a way for us to be with him. What did the mediator teach us? That God's holy, and we can't approach him on our own. The feast taught us to slow down and worship and give and be generous. The sacrifices taught us that God is gracious and merciful to our law-breaking. But the ESV expository commentary, it says this, what's most visible isn't always most significant. What's most visible isn't always most significant. It's deeper than ritual and sacrifice. It's, those, it's what those external things taught us. You see what I'm saying? The law was a teacher. All these things... They were deeper than the thing. They were deeper than the mercy seat. They were deeper than the basin for watching, washing. They were teaching us these external things taught us deeper internal things as the shadows became real. God didn't overestimate humans' ability to follow the law. The sacrificial system is evidence of that. No, he used the old covenant as a merciful teacher. You think about, we would have never understood Christ's death if we didn't have the old covenant. We'd had no clue. You know what I mean? Had we not had centuries of failures, centuries of sacrifices and examples, centuries of tabernacles and priests, but now we understand in the new covenant that Christ took our curse and we get the blessing forever. That Christ took our death and we get the life forever. That Christ took our law breaking and we get his law keeping forever. And we get more because he's fixing to say we get the heart change. We start to look like our father. You don't understand the weight of forgiveness if you haven't understand or felt the weight of debt. debt. You don't understand the weight of forgiveness if you hadn't felt the weight of debt. All right, so I forget how many years it was ago, Amy. It was like eight, five years ago, something like that. Amy was having some health problems, and we go to the doctor, and uh, eight or five years ago, I'm trying, it's specific. Uh, so she was having some health problems, and we go to the doctor, and we, we couldn't figure it out a couple times, a couple times. Well, it turns out they were kind of narrowing things down, and the doctor actually called me one day and said, listen, this could be really, really serious. He said, it could be stage four ovarian cancer. And then he left it for a week until we could get our test back. And I'm gonna tell you, it was during summer camp. I remember it vividly. I mean, it was, it was awful. That whole week, I felt like I was mourning Amy's death, like preemptively. Like it, it was terrible. It, it was terrible. Cause I, I thought, you know, this is a very real possibility. Well, then a week goes by to do some more tests, and it turns out it's nothing serious at all. And I tell you what, that was the scariest week that I'm glad I had. You know what I mean? Because you go through something like that, and the sky is bluer after that. You know what I mean? Like life is so much more precious when you felt the weight of death. And I think in these verses here, forgiveness is more precious when you feel the weight of debt. These shadows taught hundreds of years of sermons you can't do it you can't do it the heaviness of sacrifice after sacrifice after ritual after ritual but in the new covenant he takes away those external things and he's doing something internal i gotta hustle verse 10 here's the the craziest verse there's still jeremiah talking 
This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. That's crazy. I will write them on their hearts. They, I will be their God and they will be my people. All right, now these, when he said the better covenant sits on better promises, this is the better promises, all right? This is the better promises. Uh, and there's four that I wanna highlight. Four better promises I wanna highlight. The first one, promise one is, the external realities go internal. Let me read this. The laws that were once written on stone will now be written on our hearts. You remember the Old Testament, they wrote those laws everywhere. They put them on their, the, the doorposts. They'd tie them. They'd write them on paper and tie them around their foreheads, right? They'd, today they're written in paper. These laws are written in paper, but he says, I'm going further. The external realities are becoming internal. They're on our minds. See, the laws aren't just out there. They're in here, in our minds, in our hearts. That's the promise. This is the fix that God withheld in the first covenant, heart change. This is the fix, heart change. Like, and the wait for that to happen, the centuries long wait, it wasn't punishment, it was teaching. We live in the best time on earth. We get what Jeremiah wrote blindly about, what prophets prophesied blindly about, like what centuries of saints yearned for, personal connection with God. The law is in our wants. So then that transforms everything. Our worship transforms from being out there with washings and ceremonies and sacrifices. Our worship becomes in here. Our conscience is clean. Our worship's internal. Our sacrifices are now a broken heart and a contrite spirit since we have a sacrifice for sins once and for all. We see this all over the scripture. Philippians 2 says, it is God who works in you both to will, that's to want to do, and to work, that's to do, according to his good pleasure. He is rewriting our desires. Remember when he said, love is the keeping of the law? To love is to keep the law. In this new covenant, we're enabled to love and enabled to obey what we formerly couldn't love. You can't force somebody to want or love anything. He's coming on the inside and changing us. Huge promise. Promise number two. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now this is a promise that God gave to the Israelites, but now it's gone internal. It's not external. You belong to me because you are Abraham's seed, now it's gone internal. We belong to him because he lives inside of us. We're indwelled. We could preach a whole sermon series just about that. It's a huge promise. Verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. You think about in Jeremiah's day, when he's writing this, the priests are the ones who knew the word. They were the ones that explained the word. They were the ones that urged, know the Lord, know the Lord. They were the ones to, who were able to enter the most holy place and really know the Lord better than anybody else. But now, here's the promise. There's no need for a priest to teach and urge, know the Lord, because that desire won't be externally pushed. It'll be inwardly felt. He's going to do the work. We're going to want to know the Lord. That's the miracle that he changes once. That's huge. Something the law couldn't do, that's a huge promise. You know what's crazy is one day, there'll be no need for pastors. It's gonna be awesome. No one's gonna stand up and say, know the Lord, know the Lord. Because 
We all know him intimately if you know Christ, but one day we're gonna know him perfectly. Not just the privileged, from the least to the greatest. Verse 12, here's the crazy one. I'll be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. That is wild. Because he is the only one that really knows it all. You know what I mean? Like I'd be ashamed if my thoughts for one day were put up on that screen. I'd be ashamed for you guys to see that, right? He knows you better than anyone else knows you. He knows you better than you know you. And he still says, I'll be merciful towards your iniquities. Y'all, that's wild. The God who never forgets says, I'll remember their sins no more. That's wild. The God who never forgets says, I choose to forget your sin. It's his choice. It's his pleasure. He chooses this because he loves you. Mind-blowing promise. Here are the four better promises that the new covenant's based on. I will put my law into their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. And the last one is, I'll be merciful towards their iniquities. I'll remember their sins no more. It is a better covenant. Here's the better promises. Better inwardness, better relationship, better knowledge, better forgiveness. It's a better covenant based on better promises through a better mediation and a better ministry by the better Moses, the better high priest by Jesus. That's the gap. That's the context. That's the pro athlete to the regular guy. That's what Hebrews is trying to show us. This is so much better than this shadow we're looking at, looking for life here when he's saying heart change is available. I'm going to change what you want. Wild. Verse 13. Now, Jeremiah is done speaking. Now it turns back to the author, Apollos. Or Apollos. Uh, <laughs> Verse 13, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Now, Jeremiah, probably he would have cried as he penned the words of Israel's failure, but he could also rejoice that this one day he never got to see coming until heaven, and then he could see it and rejoice, right? But here he's done speaking, and Apollo says that Jeremiah's prophecy meant that with the new covenant, the old one's obsolete. It melts away when the new one comes. And he says, here's what's interesting. He says it's becoming obsolete. And I think in his day, some people still held to the old covenant. In his day, the temple still stood. My dad and my brother-in-law are in Israel right now. Actually, technically, they're in Rome right now, but they're heading to Israel. So they're sending me pictures of the Colosseum today, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. They won't see the temple, though, because it's destroyed. But in this day... The temple still stood, right? Sacrifices are still being performed, but it was becoming obsolete because that temple would be destroyed. There's a commentator named Delitched, and he says this, the temple service, though to continue, it may be a few years longer in outward splendor. It's only a bed of state on which a lifeless corpse is lying. And, isn't that cool? In Apollo's day, it's, it's on its deathbed. The shadows of the old covenant vanish as the light of the gospel spread. Now we know that that covenant is obsolete, but the lessons are not. But those shadows are vanishing under the pure light of Christ. And we get to share in that because he comes on the inside and turns us into sons and daughters of light. And we live in the best time on earth. All of these Old Testament lessons 
have gone internal and Christ lives inside of us and is changing us on the inside. I'll leave you with this verse, Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good so that you can do his will. That's so good. May he equip you with everything good so that you may do his will, working in us what's pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word that brings context, that allows us to see how much better your ministry, your mediation, your covenant, your promises are. And I thank you that even through Jeremiah's words that we get to see uh, a glimpse into what you're doing on the inside. I think for even giving Jeremiah and these New Testament saints this glimpse, Lord, God, I pray that we would understand this, that it wouldn't just be something dead out there, that, okay, Jesus is better, the covenant's better, whatever, but God, I pray that we would see that we live in an amazing time where you love us. So if we confess our sins to you, you said you'll forget them. You'll come inside of us and change us on the inside. Lord, I pray that if there's folks in this room that have never done that, never turned to you, I pray that they would, even tonight. They find somebody to talk to or just do it on their own. God, I thank you for this forgiveness that even though you know us completely, you still offer complete forgiveness. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.